treason, sedition, rebellion. This is the heritage of the American patriot. Those revolutionaries who stood on principle to fight against tyranny no matter the cost. And that spirit lives strong today in the activists and freedom fighters who fight against the authoritarian state. Each in their own way, each with their own mission, united for the they cause of freedom. They had the freedom. idea to run on a platform of fuck the police prior to actually winning the primary. Uh, I mean, AOC is a drama queen and she's full of shit. <laughs> they said, you don't get to tell us no, we're in the state health department, and I said, hell no. You brought a freaking guillotine. People already pushing back in ways that didn't even need any votes to be cast. I'm not ratting on anybody, and I did what I did, so you're going to have to give me what the law says you have to give me. You want to make the world a better place? Have some babies, and raise them to not be stupid. Hope I don't get canceled. Talk to you. These are the people whose stories I'm here to share. I'm Justin O'Donnell, and this is Submersive. Man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls... Activists, anarchists, and people of the internet, thank you for tuning in to Subversive number 70. As always, I'm your host, Justin O'Donnell. And before we get started, just remember, whatever platform you listen on, whether YouTube, Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or live on the air via LRN.FM, you can help grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and most of all, sharing with your friends. If you enjoy the content, you can visit, join our production team by visiting patreon.com slash O'Donnell to join the insurgency. Again, that's patreon.com slash O'Donnell. And make sure to check out our sponsor, snackswag.com, for all your favorite Liberty merch and all your favorite official branded submersive subversive merch that's new designs for t-shirts, dresses, hoodies. They've got some skirts, some mugs, patches, Tons of great stuff over there, so head on over to snackswag.com. The link's in the description to grab your official Liberty merch today where you can wear your principles and your messaging literally on your sleeves. Now, if you want to keep in touch between shows, you can follow me on social media and join our community Discord channel where you can chat with other fans of the show at any time. And all these links can be found in the description of the video or podcast you're listening to, so make sure you check them out today. Now... Another day, another week, another news cycle, and schools are always trending, but only as the tip of the iceberg. With more and more news coming out every week and every month about gender politics being forced on kids in schools, along with the known and now confirmed political biases of educational institutions and their administrators impacting the education provided to children, more and more parents are considering alternatives to public schools and seeking them out, whether homeschooling, school pods, prenda pods, charter schools, or whatever they can find. But are all these alternatives created equally? And even more important, are they all even improvements? Last week, Karen McDonald published an article for FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, about micro-school pods as an alternative to public education and about the possibility of employers and corporations sponsoring such micro-schools as an attractive employee benefit. And at first glance, I winced and in shock and fear, and like, are libertarians endorsing company towns? which isn't the brightest point in America's industrial and corporate evolution, weren't especially known for fostering the economic independence of the American worker. But Carrie's not an idiot, and she wouldn't blindly suggest corporate slavery as an alternative to government, so I invited her on here tonight to discuss that concept, its pros, its cons, and to explain how a free market absolutist can see a potential for employers taking such a large role in their employees' lives. So, ladies and gentlemen, joining the show tonight, Senior Education Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, Adjunct Scholar at Cato Institute, regular contributor to Forbes, and author of Unschooled, Raising Curious and Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom, and host of the Liberated podcast, Carrie McDonald. Carrie, thank you for joining today. How are you? 
Oh, I'm so glad to be with you, Justin. I'm glad that we made this happen after a back and forth on Facebook in response to my recent fee article on employer-based microschools. I mean, and isn't that how the best conversations start with arguments on social media? <laughs> yeah, you know, and I would just say in response to kind of get us going in response yep. to your uh, intro, I would say almost anything is better than government schooling. Well, and the, the question that myself and a lot of left libertarians would ask is, at what point does the corporation just become a substitute for government? Well, I think we have to separate economic power from political power. And the real problems are when government gets involved in the free market. That's what's created all, a lot of the problems that we deal with today, what's corrupted capitalism in many ways and created cronyism. So the key is to get the government out. And this is where libertarians can play a pivotal role in changing the culture, right? And in expressing the ideas of liberty, free markets, limited government, peace and prosperity. Well, we can hope we can try. And But one of the things that I've always struggled with is even using the word capitalism to describe free markets that libertarians believe in. Because whenever I'm debating and coming up against people who hate capitalism, who are trying to argue against capitalism, we're defining it differently is something I found over the years. And generally speaking, libertarians, we're the minority. Uh, even conservatives who actually believe in free markets are the minority. The, what most conservatives believe in as in capitalism is a regulated state capitalist environment. And what people on the left, socialists and communists believe is capitalism is what Karl Marx first actually defined as capitalism, which is just the private ownership of the means of production and the ability to leverage capital for political and social power. And so what the left is using as the definition of capitalism that they're so afraid of and fighting against is what capitalism's always academically been defined as. And so I struggle to call myself a capitalist uh, when I understand that the people who I'm arguing against don't share even the same definition of capitalism with me. Yeah, I don't think we should be afraid of that term capitalism. I think we should reclaim it. We should be proud capitalists. We should recognize that it is... Um, celebrating the voluntary system of free exchange. And At what point in the fight to reclaim capitalism, though, are we simply just sitting here saying, well, that wasn't real capitalism uh, and just become the mockery of ourselves that we make of the left when they say it wasn't real socialism? I think that's a fair point, but we yep. should, I mean, look, libertarians <laughs> exist in the idea, in the realm of ideas, right? And right. so we need to be focused on principles and on philosophy and on um, changing hearts and minds. And I think celebrating capitalism, celebrating the tremendous prosperity and human flourishing mm -hmm. that free market capitalism has created over the past century plus uh, is something that that libertarians are well positioned to be um, <laughs> cheerleaders for. Yeah. Now, your article uh, very specifically was focused on schooling as a benefit and schooling, um, not necessarily as a necessity, but um, breaking away from public schools with something alternative of micropods. And a lot of what you do is education focused. You're and, education fellow you um your podcast liberated focuses on education what's your background and how did you get to where you are as a libertarian focused on education yeah so uh i was an economics major as an undergrad a couple of decades ago um and i think it was through economics that i began to see um the trade-offs and um looking at incentives and 
the profit motive. And that was a completely new and different uh, vision for me. I had gone to K to 12 public schools in a suburb of uh, the South Shore of Massachusetts and never encountered anything related to economics. And so I just fell in love with it. And then through the study of economics, became more and more interested in education, looking at the lack of options that families had, the kind of monopoly system of government schooling that pervades the country. And back then, this was the late 1990s, there was even less school choice. I mean, charter schools were just starting to come on the scene. And, and, and that you know, um, is just kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we would consider, you know, school choice or education freedom today. Um, but I was able to, as part of my increased education interest, um, shadow a homeschooling family who lived nearby to my college and uh, find out a little bit about what homeschooling was like. Um, and this was completely new and different for me, but I was interested already in kind of alternative education and, and learning outside of the conventional school system. And I was just completely captivated and shadowing that homeschooling family that year. It was at the same time that I was also uh, visiting a local public elementary school uh, and then seeing the contrast between the two modes of learning um, just, you know, really encouraged me to go deeper into education innovation and education policy. So I went to graduate school in education policy at Harvard. If you were interested in education innovation at all at the time, charter schools were where you were focused. That was kind of the only niche uh uh, possibility for you at the Harvard Ed School at the time, and I think probably still today. Um, but that made me, you know, interested in thinking about expanding educational choice and freedom for families. And so then, um, you know, kind of after graduate school, I started my own education consulting company and did that for a long time. And then had my own children and decided uh, that we would pursue homeschooling and avoid government schooling here where I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, and then ended up writing for and ultimately working for FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, the country's oldest libertarian think tank, founded in 1946. Uh, and that's where I continue to spend my time. And now I have my new liberated podcast up where I talk about micro schools and education entrepreneurship and educational choice and freedom. And that's where the article that you gravitated toward came from, because I had um, I had two people on last week on the podcast who were from an organization called Microschooling NV, the letters NV for Microschooling Nevada. And this is a network that really um, is trying to expand independent microschooling throughout the state of Nevada and beyond. They do what they call partnership microschooling as well as support independent microschooling, which would be kind of individual teachers and parents creating these kind of one room schoolhouse models of multi-age classrooms with a hired teacher. But they also partner with employers or nonprofits, public libraries, even public school districts that want to do something different. So I was really interested in what they were doing in that and it piqued my interest in thinking about, you know, could employer-based microschooling be the newest workplace perk? And here we are, Justin. <laughs> no, I, I do know. I listened to the episode, and it was a great episode. And I, I think they are doing phenomenal work. And we're seeing a lot of what they were talking about emulated here in New Hampshire as well, but on a much more private scale not with organizational involvement, just individuals setting up micro-schooling groups and pods and Prenda pods and private homeschooling groups where parents just take turns teaching one day a week. Um, and that just kind of all happened organically around the Free State Project community and libertarians here in New Hampshire. Um, and it really just took off during COVID where 
a lot of parents had their kids sent home and said, okay, now you have to homeschool your kids. You don't have a choice and realized it wasn't that hard. And like, oh, why would I send them back after realizing that they could do it handily? Um, Now you talk about like early, late nineties, like the advent of charter schools. I I remember distinctly um, because I grew up in North Atterbury, Massachusetts, and I went to a private religious school all the way up to high school and then i went to public high school but i remember when choosing what high school i was going to go to my mother let me choose if i wanted to go to bishop fiend catholic school or the public school or the tri-county vote school or there was a new charter school that had opened Uh, and my freshman class would have been the first one they ever took in and it was my first exposure to politics because it almost tore the county to pieces because everyone was fighting over who had to pay for the charter school Right, And everyone was losing their minds over it because it was going to be based in Attleboro, but it would take students from all over, not just southeastern Massachusetts, but Rhode Island, too, right, into right. that charter school. And people were losing their minds over who would be accepted, who would be allowed to go, and who would have to pay for it. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, sorry. No, <laughs> well, I, was I, just... I would say that was my first ever exposure to school choice was having to choose my own school as a kid. And it never really clicked with me of what a grand mistake I made, first off, by choosing North Attleboro Public High School, or I got straight A's and slept through class. But but it's wild. And that was only, uh, yeah, in the mid-2000s when they first started actually becoming a thing that were an option. Yeah, you know, I would say libertarians have a, um, difficult relationship with school choice. Um, <laughs> you know, my vision or my ideal would be a fully privatized education market with no taxpayer right. funding at all of education. Um, and there are people, you know, at school choice advocates who will say, yes, that's true, but we need to kind of reduce the power and influence of the teachers union. We need mm-hmm. to somehow figure out ways of breaking up the existing government schooling monopoly and provide families with more choice for the kids that are in school today who are currently <laughs> suffering in government schooling. Uh, and I sympathize with that. And I, I appreciate the kind of vision of allowing education dollars, taxpayer dollars to follow students instead of funding systems. But the the goal really is private education options. And I would put micro schools in that. I mean, so right. I, let's just sort of back up a little bit and provide some kind of historic context. Micro school networks were growing pre-2020. You mentioned Prenda Learning. That is an Arizona-based, fast-growing yep. micro school network that preceded the lockdowns and education disruption of the virus response. Um, and there were other fast growing networks as well. I think of Acton Academy, which is a similar model of kind of one room schoolhouses that was growing across the country. Um, And then this was all accelerated when school closures occurred in the spring of 2020. And then in the summer of 2020, the term pandemic pod first came on the scene where parents were scrambling to figure out what they were going to do with prolonged school closures and wanting their kids to have much needed social interaction after being separated from family and friends and kind of their community uh, over the past couple of previous months. And so these pandemic pods, which really were micro schools, I mean, they were kind of these home-based, small groups, typically multi-aged, either with a hired educator, college student, or some kind of facilitator, or parents taking turns facilitating a curriculum, meeting together um, to build kind of community around learning and and teaching. 
And they, uh, I think, have really disrupted education. I mean, we saw their expansion through 2020 and 2021, a lot of families removing their children from a district school for independent homeschooling. The homeschooling rate, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, doubled uh, in 2020 alone to more than 11% of the overall U.S. K-12 school age population being homeschooled. That level remained at record high levels this year, according to recent data analyzed by the Associated Press. It only fell about 17% from the record 63% increase in 2020. So families are continuing to opt out of conventional schooling, even as district schools reopen for full-time in-person learning. And a lot of that, I think, is because some of these pandemic pods turned into full-fledged microschools. Uh, <laughs> and you also see the expansion of, of you know, microschools like Prenda Learning, which Prenda is Arizona-based. They are tuition-free for families in Arizona under the generous education savings account and school choice policies in Arizona and other states. Uh, and there's there, um, you know, a fraction of the cost of a small fraction of the cost of any other kind of private education options in states that don't have those kinds of programs. Um, and so, you know, microschools, I think, are really the future. I think microschools, hybrid schools, particularly when they run on kind of a homeschooling model that enables families to opt out of compulsory schooling statutes and allow for education innovation. Um, I think that's really, you know, where we're headed. And I think that employers are starting to see that too and say, well, hey, maybe we could offer uh, a small so, micro school in our, in our uh, workplace. So I'm with you 100% up until that point. Yeah. Where I agree that, that the school, where I agree that public schools are a dying art, where yeah. at, at one point they may have been necessary during the industrial and cultural revolution of this country to get to mm. where we are now. I wouldn't. Who knows? Right. I didn't live through it. I'm not going to make a judgment on the past. I want. We could go into judgment. the history right. of compulsory schooling, and I and yeah. I, I don't agree with you at all on that. Well, so. I, I'm I'm not going to make a yes or no statement there at all. I'm just saying I try and live in the now and only judge the now. And I know now it's not necessary. I know now with access of the complete and total sum of human knowledge at a fingertips of right. a tablet that costs thirty dollars. There's no need to send kids to public schools to be bored for eight hours a day. Um, but your article starts off and mentions one one such corporate school, which was Elon Musk starting it for his own children, in a sense. And I, I feel like that is almost a slippery slope there where it starts. It wasn't Elon Musk necessarily starting his micro school as a corporate benefit as it was for his own personal benefit and the personal benefit of his children and a few close friends who happen to be employees of his company. But it sets the standard of the company getting involved in the education. And what I think back to my immediate response was to think back in the history of healthcare. And a lot of people know my experience, my work history is within Medicare and healthcare systems in the, um, for the past decade in doing Medicare regulation, healthcare regulation and I worked a lot with Medicare Advantage companies to try and help people opt out of Medicare, which is a really difficult process to do, but it ends up saving people tens of thousands of dollars over the final years of their life. Is At what point did health insurance become an employee benefit? When the government told employers they weren't allowed to raise wages, but they had to still somehow compete to attract employees and retain employees, they began in offering health insurance. And now we're to the point where the government realized the employers were better at it than the government. And now it's become almost mandated 
that employers do it, where health insurance benefits are now required for any employer who employs over a certain number of employees for more than a certain number of hours of a week, even though it started as something that the employers voluntarily chose to do just to create a more attractive benefit. So what slippery slope, once corporations start picking up the cost of the schooling, and it's no longer a burden, a tax burden on the government to pick up the cost of schooling, might the government say, oh, you have over 100 employees. If your employees work over 40 hours a week, you have to offer schooling to their children as a benefit, as a really quick and slippery slope to transition an obligation onto the market. So there's a few things there. Um, you know, I would say in, in everything that you're talking about, the right. problem is government. Yes. And as libertarians, <laughs> we need to be pushing back against that government involvement in the free market, that that is uh, our role. And we are uniquely positioned to do that because we have a high level of skepticism uh, toward government involvement in private but life. But the pragmatist so, in me has to realize we're historically unsuccessful. So let's, but again, using your healthcare example, I think it's really right. important. You're right that that health employer-based health insurance right. is a product of World War II era price controls in mm -hmm. which employers were not able to wait, raise wages. So they decided to figure out other ways of attracting employees. And so they began to add benefits, including health insurance, which at the time was not particularly sought after. Uh, and then what really catalyzed it was in 1943 when the IRS and the federal government began to provide allow um, premiums on health insurance right. to be tax-free. Tax uh, and so, again, it's the government <laughs> that's the problem. And that's what we need to be fo focused on is unleashing sure. the power of the free market. But I live in the here and now. Compete <laughs> for workers. Yeah, but this uh, is the here and now. If, if libertarians aren't pushing back against political power and government involvement in the free market, to. what are we uh, so doing? We have I mean, to. that should be our role. We absolutely um, have to. And, and so if a private company wants to offer a micro school, I'll then I don't. Froze there or did you freeze there? Yeah. If a private well, company wants to offer a micro school, you know, I don't see that as a problem. And I, and I feel like no. from our discussion on Facebook, there was a little well, bit of, um, you know, oh, offering a micro school is, you know, the the gateway drug into like wage slavery. And yet, you know, employers have long had workplace-based childcare programs. I think of like Bright Horizons, which is probably the largest national network of employer-based daycare centers. And that's not leading to worker oppression, or maybe you think it would be, but I, I don't see that. So again, my fear is the government and how the government responds to things. So mine too. Right. And when I say I live in the here and now, um, I think one of the greatest distinctions, I think it is imperative on libertarians to fight back against government meddling in the free market. It's imperative on libertarians to be at the forefront of fighting for true free market enterprise. But the reality is we libertarians are a minority. We are a political and a cultural minority. And the vast majority of people are are passive and will do and go along with what the government says is best for them. And We've seen some of the most successful libertarian candidates, at least in the political arena, be people like Larry Sharp, who doesn't run on a purely principled stop the government approach. He runs on a, okay, let's acknowledge the bounds of the government within which we live, and how can we work meaningfully within these bounds 
to protect what liberty we have left and slowly bring stuff stuff back. And that's where the Free State Project libertarians have had a lot of success working within the political system, um, is it, at first acknowledging the system is there. And we have a lot of libertarians, and I used to fall into the trap myself where I'd say I'm a diehard radical anarchist libertarian. Um, no, we must abolish all public schools tomorrow. There's no negotiation, do it now. And if that was my mentality working in the legislative process, we never would have gotten education savings accounts or school choice programs in New Hampshire. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. That's where I was saying this kind of complicated relationships liber libertarians have with school choice policies because it still involves taxpayer funding of education. Right. And, you know, as, as libertarians, we want the government out of education entirely. We want full separation of school and state. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I don't envy those of you working in... Uh, state level politics or national politics around um, the Libertarian Party. You know, I'm really much more focused on kind of the, the philosophy of libertarianism and sticking to principles, which hopefully informs some of these policy discussions, but keeps us honest. Yeah, it's important to do. And that's my favorite part of libertarianism is the pure philosophy and the principles behind things and being able to think about the perfect utopian anarchist world that I want to live in. Yeah. Um, but then I wake up and I go to work and <laughs> I yeah. have to deal with regulation of my company and my fundraising uh, efforts and um, my consulting on a daily basis. And I look at things. And when I made the comments about this is maybe the next step to wage slavery, what I'm thinking about is that we have a lot of states where government mandates students receive an education until the at age of 17 or 18. And they have to be in schooling. What form of schooling? There's some leeway on if these employer-based pods are one of those things all of a sudden it's sure that counts but now you are tied to an employer um yeah i, I see your concerns about risk. i see your concerns about the slippery slope and i just throw yeah. this out there for you because one of the things that we had in kind of our back and forth on our on yeah. facebook and commenting about um this article was your first question or comment was what's next employer housing and I made the point that we already have that. I mean, we have, think of vacation resorts who often um, will bring in workers, seasonal workers, and offer employee housing. But I have an even better example for you, and I'm curious okay. what you would All think right. of this. So I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right near Harvard Yard, mm -hmm. the belly of the beast. And I uh, have a friend who is on the faculty at Harvard. She went to Harvard, has graduate degrees from there, and has been in the faculty for a number of years, and she lives in faculty housing. So she has a beautiful, spacious, three-bedroom townhouse near Harvard Square um, that's very, very below market rate for this area. She right. um, has you know, nice benefits through Harvard. She probably doesn't make the salary that she would on kind of the free market, but she has all of these other benefits. So would you call her a victim of wage slavery? Not yet. Probably not yet. But there's a big group of people who I think I would call. And those, and the biggest, the company towns never ended in the United States. We got rid of private company towns, but people never realized the largest company towns and the most controlled company towns and the most oppressive company towns that ever existed in this country were, were always and have always been military bases. The government, where, yet again, it's the government, it not private <laughs> enterprise. 
Correct, but it's where you live, you work, your children are educated, um, housing's provided, food's provided, all in a single controlled location. You shop there. They have the base has its own stores and its own mall where you're allowed to stop and it's a closed economy and nothing gets out. And you're paid so little in the military um, that you can't afford to leave that company town. And a lot of people end up trapped in the military for 20 plus years with their family because the benefits, the healthcare, the education, they can't afford to give up because they wouldn't be able to afford to provide them at the level their families become accustomed to on the inside. Okay. This is where I think you and I will disagree. Okay. I think that the um, draft registration should be abolished. I think that shouldn't exist. But the reality is we don't have military conscription and these are all... Uh, people by free will who decide to join the military through human action. So I think to take away, especially as libertarians, we have to believe in personal agency, personal responsibility. So to say that these people are trapped in this career that they have chosen that is not uh, through force is, I think, a little bit dishonest. Is coercion force? How is that coercion? They have chosen this career path. They have signed you know whatever military contract. Now we can argue about you know the role of the military and taxpayer do you think funding a sixteen year old? But... Do you think a sixteen year old is old enough and mature enough and given an adequate education right now uh, to make the right decisions uh, and be in the right mind and be informed when making a decision to sign away the next ten years of their life? I don't know about 16 year olds, but certainly because that's how old you can list that. Well, then maybe we change that to 18, right? Because I I think in order to enter contracts, I think you need to be an age of adulthood. So that's sort of a, you know, because right now the United States Army, but aside from that, let's say you're 18 in public schools. Yeah. 16 year old kids. Another reason to abolish public schools. Um, But no, I mean, I think the point is that when you enter a contract at an illegal adult age, you have decided that you are an employee at will or you're choosing that the benefits of that career path outweigh the costs of that. Um, And, you know, I I think that that this holds true in all kinds of ways. I mean, even, you know, the company towns. Let's talk about that a little bit, because that was kind of your your fear. The company towns were also involved, you know, employees at will. Now, back at the turn of the 20th century, when many of these company towns existed, um, you know, there wasn't the level of kind of prosperity that we have today, thanks to free markets. And so there were a lot fewer opportunities available to workers. They, at the very least, didn't have cars. So in many cases, they were kind of uh, trapped in a sense of lack of mobility in some of these company towns. Um, but they were still employees at will. Many of them were earning wages or experiencing standards of living that were higher than other workers at the time. You know, I think we have to look a little bit deeper at the history of company towns um, than what we may be being fed. You know, you see Jacobin Magazine and PBS do a lot of uh, takes on what these evil company towns were were like. And some of it's true. There were a lot of kind of paternalism in these in these towns. But we also have to remember that that workers were choosing these environments because they were the best option for them at the time. They were providing better quality of life, better wage, better benefits than what they what they could have found elsewhere. And so they were choosing benefits over costs. 
Um, and then I think it's it's also I think really um, important to point out that one of the company towns that's often um, used as an example of how evil this program was was the uh, George Pullman company, the rail car company uh, in the late 19th century uh, outside of Chicago, which um, the the uh, Pullman company decided to lower wages of workers there, but didn't lower rents in the company owned housing, which is sort of speaks to your concern about right. um, being tied to employee benefits. And what happened? The workers revolted. <laughs> they striked. It was one of the first kind of major employee strikes in the country. And what happened next? President Grover Cleveland shot down that strike. So again, it was the government interfering right. with the private market, with uh, employees and employers trying to work it out. And and that persists. You know, then we have the passage of the well, how do you feel about unions and collective bargaining in yeah. a free market? Because I know a lot of right. libertarians are just ardently anti-union. No, I'm anti-public I'm anti, I'm anti -public union. I mean, the, our taxpayer dollars shouldn't be going to public <laughs> unions. Um, but if a group of employees want to wants to gather and uh, decide to fight for better working conditions, more power to them as long as we get the government out of that. And it's problematic where we have the national... Labor Relations Board um, that, again, provides sort of uneven protections and um, uh, tilts the balance toward workers. Uh, I think that's unfair. But in a, again, in a pure, if we think of our libertarian utopia in a pure private market, then um, employees and employers kind of battling it out for um the equilibrium of benefits and wages and working conditions makes a lot of sense. Because I know, I know a lot of libertarians who can't honestly answer the question of who they think is the bigger mob boss, Kennedy or Hoffa. Um, <laughs> when you think about the That's union great. struggles of the sixties, the reality is they worked hand in hand the entire time. Cause if it weren't for government granting unions such power as they have today, Right. They wouldn't be as problematic as they are. Like exactly. I, I've worked in union shops where I was let go and just no longer scheduled and fired because I had a political discussion on a break with someone who I didn't know was the union president's daughter. Yeah. So, and then when I complained about it, they threatened my father's job. Um, and this is an organization that's supposed to protect their employees' rights. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. I, but I, I think I, we we need to keep our eyes on uh, our eyes on the prize, right? Like we need to be focused on the fact that this is a government created problem in many cases. Um, and as libertarians, our role is to push back against government involvement in the free market and to reduce the size and scope of government. And that gets back to kind of the policy implications, which is right. the heroic work that you and and others like you do, which is how do we get the government out of our private and professional lives? And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that because we've been trying for so long and we've been trying for so, so hard and it hasn't been working. School choice it seems to be the most successful avenue libertarians have had in working to reduce the involvement of government in one singular and particular aspect of our lives has been expanding school choice, but it's still right. been largely tax funded and tax uh taxpayer based school choice programs. We've had some major setbacks where we had a great 
almost win here in Croydon, New Hampshire, uh, where libertarians <laughs> almost eviscerated a school board's budget and forced them to find a private alternative. And then uh, the left managed to rally together everyone to raise their neighbor's property taxes and undo it. Um, a lot of work for us to do, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, but I do look at places like New Hampshire where I, I know, I know kids, 10, 11, 12 years old here in New Hampshire who've never stepped foot in a public school. We have our commissioner of education who's a homeschooler and whose kids have never stepped foot in a public school. Um, and I see these as positive signs in this one area. But then at the same time, while we've succeeded in repealing a lot of occupational licensing, it's not been nearly as successful as it has been an expanding school choice across the board, not just here in New Hampshire, but in other states as well. Government is still firmly meddled and firmly involved in every aspect of the employer and employee relationship. And so I fear the consequences of adding more benefits to uh, and more entanglements to the employer-employee relationship rather than encouraging employees and their communities as individuals to set up their pods within their communities, their families, their friends, instead of relying on their employer to do it. Because the reality is the separation between their employer and the state is not as real as we want it to be. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I think we can have both and, right? I mean, I think yeah. that most of the education, innovation, and entrepreneurship right now is coming outside of any kind of organizational structure. It's coming from these kind of spontaneously created pandemic pods that have turned into micro schools or just organic groups of families getting together and deciding to do something different. Um, there's tremendous amount in New Hampshire uh, of, of education entrepreneurship. I'm just so excited about it. Um, but I, I just would kind of step back again and say mm -hmm. that while there is this potential of a slippery slope, we just simply haven't seen it with Bright Horizons or these other employer-based sure. daycare programs that have been around for years. Uh, and if anything, it would start there, especially with the kind of federal push toward childcare subsidies and universal preschool programs. And we're just not seeing that kind of employer co coercion. That's not to say that that couldn't happen, but that's where we have to be very vigilant and push back against it. But we can't kind of prevent it from existing in the first place because we're worried about something that might come down the, ro the road. We need to encourage as many free market education solutions as possible. And that's where, you know, most of my my optimism now comes from is just seeing the uh, tremendous education entrepreneurship that's come out of the last couple of years in particular. Um, and from a policy perspective, kind of back to practical applications <laughs> of libertarian values, um, school choice is one part of that. But I think, you know, we're missing another really critical piece. And that is, I feel like, reducing barriers for education entrepreneurs, right? I mean, libertarians involved in policy should be reducing entrepreneurship barriers more generally in terms of occupational licensing reform and um, deregulation. But I think in education entrepreneurship in particular, not only because it's such a highly regulated sector um, and with so many barriers to entry, but because a lot of the people doing it, you know, are former public school teachers uh, or parents who just decide that they want to solve a problem for their children and their small community and, you know, want some help kind of getting going. So what can we do to sort of support education entrepreneurship at the state level? How can we, you know, provide just kind of general business support uh, and resources for startups um, that don't involve taxpayer funding, but that's more sort of educational and, and, uh, and informative. Um, and then, yeah, let's work at 
reducing these barriers to entry. Let's reduce tax burdens for these education startups. Let's expand uh, homeschooling freedoms so that a lot of these programs can operate under homeschooling. And let's, one of my favorite pieces of kind of policy is let's expand exemptions to existing rules. So in a lot of states, um, these kind of alternative learning models, hybrid schools, micro schools, homeschool co-ops, um, there's not sort of a defined area for them yet in terms of regulation, which I think is a good thing. So let's keep it that way. But sometimes if they do fall under regulation, it's under childcare licensing, which is, as you know, one of the most Awful. kind of cumbersome. <laughs> but a lot of states have these exemptions to these childcare licensing rules. And I'm finding that a lot of these kind of co-learning spaces and microschools are able to fall under that. So what if we can just expand those exemptions and then we end up with sort of a leaky bucket of regulation? So we're not really eliminating the regulation, <laughs> but there's so much leakage that it just inspires education entrepreneurship all over the place. Yeah, no, I, I've seen one example of something unique. I, Hesitate because it doesn't follow this model of micro schools I've seen elsewhere and that I've come across, but the Granite Mines Homeschooling Center gets yes! set up here in New Hampshire. Michelle, oh, yeah. Uh, Michelle's great program and her and going to be on my podcast soon. Yep. <laughs> uh, working on a great project where they have just kind of like a paper class model and Amazing. where anybody can come host a class and charge per the class, cover their costs for yeah. it and for anyone to come. And all they're doing is providing a venue. Yes. Yes. Um, right. And she's set up as kind of a community learning center, a community space. So right. kind of looking at, at um, town level zoning to make that easier for sort of these emerging models that are not well-defined, right. that in a lot of cases are new categories. Um, I think that's really promising. I mean, she's just doing incredible things there. I'll, you know, I'll give you another example of um, another kind of co-learning space that exists in, in Georgia. Um, and it's like a, a co-working space, but for kids. And the founder had said that, you know, he's looking to expand. He wants this to be a model in more states. He thinks that he could, um, you know, sell out in a day in, you know, big urban centers. There'd be a lot of demand for this kind of model, but he doesn't want to go into those markets because of the tremendous regulation and burden that is there. So instead he's looking at states that are much more amenable to entrepreneurship and encouraging of um, in education innovation places like New Hampshire. Um, and so I think that's also interesting because it shows sort of the opportunity cost of regulation mm -hmm. and the continued mismatch uh, between supply and demand. So there's tremendous unmet demand in a lot of these urban centers. Entrepreneurs aren't entering there because they don't want to deal with the regulatory hassle. And then, um, you know, the sort of entering markets where there may not be quite as much demand, at least initially, for some of these things. Um, but it, it, there's a lot that we could do as libertarians to be encouraging, uh, I think, more education entrepreneurship through reducing some of these regulations and hurdles. So if you were going to try and start a pod tomorrow and you had the freedom to do it anywhere in the country, whatever's best for your kids, you could relocate, yeah. no cost, no worries. What state right now or what region of the country right now is best regulation-wise, tax-wise to oh. do this? In? Well, uh, well, selfishly, I would like to see it here in Massachusetts because I have four kids who are homeschooled. <laughs> and that's why, you know, our options are limited. Although on my podcast yeah. recently, I did have on an education entrepreneur in central Massachusetts who mm -hmm. – 
turned her, you know, pod and kind of um, pandemic related community of homeschoolers into a full fledged micro school. And she said her biggest issue is she doesn't think that there's a lack of demand. She thinks there's a lack of supply for these alternatives. She has families that drive an hour. Uh, to her program. So I, I think there's a lot of options there, even in highly regulated states like ours. We just need to make it easier and, and get that gets back to kind of the how do we encourage these education entrepreneurs? How do we provide them with some of that startup um, startup skill to really get going? So this part of that. But yeah, I mean, in terms of states that are really leading the pack with educational freedom, it, it's the states that are passing uh, a lot of these school choice laws and that are then triggering education entrepreneurship. So it's places like Arizona and Florida and increasingly New Hampshire. It's really wonderful to see the expansion of school choice legislation there, especially thanks to the free staters. Um, so I think we're going to you know, continue to see that. It's interesting. This uh, just my podcast today that came out, I interviewed Denisha Merriweather, who's the founder of Black Minds Matter, which is an organization through the American Federation for Children that pushes for the expansion of school choice policies. And she, through her Black blackmindsmatter.net website has a, has a directory of now more than 300 Black-owned schools um, that, uh, private schools that are around the country, some charter schools, but a, a lot of private schools, um, that she says wouldn't exist in many cases if it weren't for state-level school choice policies. And so she's trying to help um, elevate their work and also help them to become advocates for expanding school choice policies, recognizing that their school is a result of that. And so it, it's also an example of where, you know, again, as, as much as we may be conflicted with school choice policies and taxpayer dollars still going to education, in this case, it's encouraging uh, entrepreneurship. It's getting kids outside of an assigned district school and allowing families to choose the best educational option for their kids. Yeah. Now, we're over a year and a half and 70 episodes so far. It's hard not to cover a subject multiple times. Um, and this is now that I'm thinking about it, you're only the second person I've had to come on and talk about school choice and education freedom. But the last was Lindsay Neural. And Lindsay's oh, okay. big focus, um, we, we talked a lot about like the difficulties in homeschooling. Homeschooling, right. When you're uh, a nine to five full time employed and can't afford the childcare. Yeah. Like when you can't afford the time off and uh, how she helps people how, manage to homeschool effectively, efficiently while still working full time and yeah. not managing to do it. What advice would you have for parents in the bad states where there aren't these school uh, micro schools popping up where there aren't all these alternatives, where there aren't education savings and freedoms accounts and a charter school in every block? What would your advice be to parents who want to improve their kids' education because public schools are failing them left and right, but don't have any alternatives easily available? Like, how can they go about just making it happen? Yeah, that's again, employer based micro schools <laughs> could be a good option for that family that's working 40 hours a week, uh, where often these micro schools run on kind of homeschooling, a uh, homeschooling foundation where families unenroll their kid from a district school and take over full responsibility as independent homeschoolers, but then send their kids to uh, a program. And this doesn't have to be employer based. I really think this is just the very beginning of thinking about employer based micro schools, mm -hmm. um, but where most of the current growth with micro schools is coming from at the moment is these independent micro schools, like you mentioned, Prenda Learning Pods, the Acton Academies, which um, New Hampshire also has, and other states as well. Um, and they're just seeing 
tremendous growth. And so I, I guess one of the first things I would say to families looking at what they can do is um, recognize there's a lot more options available to them than they may otherwise think. And I think the past two years of education disruption have opened up a lot of families' eyes to the fact that there are some accessible options beyond their assigned district school. And they may never have thought of that before. I mean, we've seen over the past couple of years an increase in not only homeschooling, as I mentioned, which has just had massive growth, but also an increased um, growth in private school enrollment, Catholic school enrollment that had been on the decline over the past couple of decades, but um, saw an uptick, particularly in certain cities like Chicago. Um, and Catholic schools, parochial schools tend to be low cost as well, as do these micro schools. I mean, micro schools um, can be a fraction of the cost of a traditional private school. I mentioned this a learning center for homeschoolers out in Massachusetts um, that I interviewed the founder of a couple of weeks ago on my podcast. Her program is about one fifth the cost of a traditional private school in Massachusetts. Um, so even if it's not free, uh, it could be more affordable for families than some other options. And, and that would be the one-fifth cost is for five days a week, 10 months of the year. I mean, it's a full-time schooling alternative, but you're registered as a homeschooler. Um, so there's that. I think the other thing that I'm really excited about is virtual learning. Um, certainly Zoom school that a lot of parents encountered with school closures was a disaster for many kids, but I'm hopeful that parents realize that your kind of Zoom school tied to your district is not like a lot of these <laughs> online platforms that are really high quality that were designed to be online curriculum platforms with teachers who love to be there and who want to learn in this way. Uh, and virtual learning platforms can also be um, really, really low cost for families. So, you know, the other piece of it, and I'll just add. The Khan um, Academy is free, isn't it? Khan Academy is free. Yeah. The other piece of it, and that kind of gets to my kind of a final point about this, is certainly there are still families who have to work, uh, you know, at a building five days a week or more um, and don't have a lot of flexibility. But one thing that the um, pandemic response has done, I think, is shaken up our view of work. And so a lot of people may have more workplace flexibility now than they did a couple right. of years ago. So this expectation that you're tied to your workplace nine to five, five days a week and an office building, um, I think that's gone away for a lot of people. And as they have as workers, more freedom and flexibility in their own work schedules, they'll want to grant that same freedom and flexibility to their children in terms of education. And that's where virtual learning, uh, Khan Academy, a lot of these low cost or free online providers can really be helpful. And then maybe supplement with some of these micro schools or part-time learning uh, center options. Yeah. I, the only two I can ever remember are the Khan Academy because it's free. And it, I always remember the free one because I still don't know how they make money. And, that's the, profit, yeah. <laughs> and the Ron Paul uh, curriculum, because that's what all the libertarians in my comment section always demand I talk about. Yes. Um, and I've... and <laughs> speaking of Ron Paul, I, I Michelle had told me recently, we talked about Granite Mines Homeschool Center in, in New Hampshire, one of these, you know, great learning centers. She said that she has a couple micro schools coming in soon, and one of them is going to be focused around the Ron Paul curriculum. And so this is, again shows the ultimate customized custom customization of these micro schools that, that you can really tailor these to whatever educational philosophy you want. It could be faith-based, like a lot of hybrid schools and hybrid homeschools have been for years. It could be, you know, focused on a Ron Paul curriculum. It could be focused on, um, you know, more of a modular curriculum where you have Khan Academy for math and you might have another uh, free or low-cost 
you know, learning platform for English language arts and so on. So it's just so much possibility there. Awesome. It's great. Well, I'm still hesitant, still terrified of what the government's going to do to We should be employers. terrified of what the government's going to do. That's what we libertarians <laughs> are known for. Because um, I also look at, like, the, the, the things we didn't even touch on or dive into, and no way we'll have time, is even the size and scope of employers. Like, the difference between your small employer, the difference between uh, even, um, like, private, like, local um, small business and a giant mega corporation and what can they can offer. And does this then just become another tool for Walmart to put out of business to local uh, stores because Walmart can afford to subsidize the local school. But if you don't work for Walmart, your kids don't get to go to school uh, kind of a stuff because not all corporations like I believe that Elon Musk believes he is acting in the best interest of humanity and will one day wake up and find that he's become the fascist dictator of Mars and won't know how. So I'm not sure I trust corporations any more than I trust government to have the interests and um, the the uh, interests of their employees at the forefront of what they're doing. Well, they they have the yeah. they have self interest at the forefront. Right. The difference between private enterprise and government, which is very clear is coercion in terms of political power. So economic power uh, is not nearly the threat uh, to individual liberty that government power is, a political power is. And so I have much less concern about uh, free market solutions in education than I do about ed government-run solutions to education. And I again, I'll say what I said in the beginning, yeah. that anything that can weaken government-run schooling, that can provide families with exit options outside of an assigned district school uh, is going to benefit their children and their family. Because I think we can all agree the worst case scenario is government deciding that employers are responsible for school, but then they still don't even cut the taxes. They just find yeah. something else to spend it on. Yeah, again, but again, we, we just haven't seen that in the early childhood care uh, sector, which if we're going to see it anywhere by now, we would have seen it there and we just haven't. It's not to say it won't happen, but we have to be pushing back against it. And I think um, it gives me some hope that, that there's some opportunity here for us. Yeah, well, I hope or I mean, maybe the reason we haven't seen it is because it's not something government's involved in currently. So it's not because government. Well, the government involved. is in a lot of cities well, and a lot of cities and states. Um, there is a f push for universal preschool programs. Um, Colorado just passed a universal preschool program, ended up creating a new department of early childhood education there. So no, yeah, we're I've seeing this. I've forgotten we, about it. I remember yeah. four years ago there was a push in New Hampshire for full day full day kindergarten, and yeah. after that loss, I've not we've not heard a word of it since. Yeah, we should we should do another episode on the harms of universal government preschool programs. But I think, again, just as, a, as an indicator, we're not seeing it. Uh, we're not seeing this kind of government um, push toward employer-mandated daycare programs and day, employer-based daycare programs have been along, around for a long time as an employee benefit, as a way to attract and ret retain workers and be a market differentiator. We're not seeing... Um, the government come in and mandate that for other employers. And so I think that that gives us a, an opportunity to say, let's, let's give it a try. I mean, the, the last thing we want to do as libertarians is prevent any of this experimentation and innovation and education uh, and employer-based education solutions, you know, could be a really great way forward for a lot of families. That's my big hangup. 
I don't want to get in the way, but I'm scared of what might come come out of it. <laughs> we need our we need that fear. That's what keeps our our work so important and keeps us on our toes. So, uh, so this, agreed. This is Ben Lightning. I have learned things. I always enjoy learning things. Not everyone gets to teach me things. So thank you so much uh, for coming on tonight. Thank you so much for having this conversation. Where can people follow you? Learn more about what you're doing and follow your work. You, oh, you do yeah. so much. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been delightful. You know, thanks yeah. again. Justin for for reaching out and and sparking the conversation and inviting me on. I really appreciate yeah. it. So, yeah, um, viewers can find me at fee.org, the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org/carry, k e r r y. Uh, you can also find me uh, at my podcast liberatedpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Awesome. So, go check her out. Check out her writing on fee.org, liberated podcast dot org uh, dot com dot com <laughs> i'm terrible she's also on twitter i everything i do is on twitter so that's my whole world is on twitter yeah uh, so I'm, on, <laughs> I'm on twitter at carrie uh underscore edu so i'd love to so see you there too go give her a follow learn what you can it's great uh get involved if you don't have a micro school in your community if you're looking at how to get your kids out of the system now's the time to take the step people are more open to it now than ever before and it's important to take those steps to force the conversation and i've been watching the live chat all night and there's at least a couple of you guys who've been watching the show commenting all night who thank you for everyone who has been but i recognize you and know you as former public school teachers education professionals uh and active libertarians so maybe the callings to you to get involved and start the local school in your community um, but for everyone else, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you comment below. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you give it a like. Make sure you give it a share. And let us know what you want to hear in the future because we're here to have conversations that no one else wants to or no one else can. We're uncensored every week. And until next time, stay free. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Subversive. Make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live on YouTube. And make sure to leave some comments and reviews on whatever platform you listen on to let me know what you thought of this episode. And a huge thanks and shout out to our sponsors and the awesome members of the Insurgency on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can join the Insurgency on Patreon by following the links in the description for patreon.com slash and if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast every day. So until next time, everybody, be free.